CIUT 89.5, the sound of your city. Stream CIUT at www.ciut.fm. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT-FM. Welcome, listeners. Welcome uh, back to the Radical Reverend Show. Boy, uh, that was the week that was. And uh, certainly our second guest on the show today is going to talk about schools reopening and everything that's gone with that. This is not, of course, a new topic to those listeners out there. But we're not starting there. We're starting um, actually in the university setting. Um, I've Delighted to have on the show Tom Cooper, who is a faculty member at York University in Equity Studies. Uh, he's a member of Pride um, and historian who's in particular looked at uh, the bathhouse raids, among other uh, issues in Canadian history. So, Tom, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. It's great to be here with you, Sherry. Thank you. Yeah. So, so talk a little bit about your how did you get into all of this? Start us off there. Well, I will have to say it's an honor to be with you here uh, because you are one of the original signatories of the 1971 We Demand protest. And that was an important protest. It's one of the, it was the first national queer protest in Canada. And it was on the anniversary, the second anniversary of the 1969 criminal code reform, which had been celebrated as this decriminalization. But what you did and what those other activists did on that day uh, in August 1971, is say, that didn't work. You know, it, it, the letter you signed said that 1969 merely recognized the obvious. You know, the, the police couldn't our bedrooms, but they were coming after us everywhere else. And through the 1970s and 1980s, uh, that was the case. And so that's how we find mass arrests in parks, uh, in washrooms, and of course, in the bathhouses. So that is sort of my historical um, research. I got into this pride thing by accident. I, I didn't go looking for pride grants. What I went looking for is grants that were provided by the Department of Canadian Heritage to celebrate 1969 as decriminalization. So from that, that was my entry point here. And that's when I discovered pride had received a $250,000 grant um, to celebrate decriminalization. So I started my investigation there. Uh, speaking here to Tom uh, Hooper about uh, pride and grants. And we're doing this in light of, and I should just uh, say this, uh, in light of the fact that the police, uh, Toronto police have asked for a 2.5% increase. Um, <laughs> this is against the backdrop of, of course, Black Lives Matter, um, the substantive and primary demand to defund the police by at least 50%. Um, uh, we have not in Toronto defunded any anything police related. In fact, we've given them more money each budget ask. Um, this has just been rubber stamped by the police board, so um, hasn't gone through council yet. But I, I, again, this is in light of our shelters completely full. Uh, yesterday, there was not one bed uh, available in our Toronto shelter system um, and a host of other issues that, of course, this money could go towards instead. Um, so we're, you know, part of the backdrop of this conversation is police funding and police presence in Pride. So, Tom, uh, take it away. What happened? What did you find out? Well, you know, let's just on the issue of police funding. I think it tells us they're not listening. 
Okay. We just had the queer community in Toronto. We just had this missing persons review come out, which made all of these recommendations pertaining to uh, taking responsibility from the police and giving it to community organizations. And we really need to mobilize that report as a, a sign that policing is dysfunctional and is not providing our communities with safety. And we are not asking for more of that. We have been constantly asking year after year, every time this, it's every basically January this comes up because I gave a deputation for the No Pride and Policing Coalition last January on this same thing, the police budget. So it's, they just don't listen. I mean, I could take the exact same uh, deputation I gave this year and uh, from last year and give it this year. Like I wouldn't need to change any of the words. They, they're not listening and they're just doing the same thing. And so that's what we see. Uh, not to go down a different rabbit hole here, but yeah. um, uh, John Tory just making made an announcement, which he was kind of had to do because otherwise it would be too late about pilot projects uh, for you know mental health response rather than police response. Now, part of the budget ask is to give more money to the police to do mental health yeah. work. So, um, so, so anyway, what do you what what do you make of the you know the pilot projects? Um, uh, around mental health response. I know CMA, um, uh, Canadian Mental Health Association is involved in this now, um, but they've only allocated 12 million. I just, there's something about the 12 million allocated to that versus the $25 million allocated to the police, but yeah, your thoughts. That's, that's the priority, right? We have, it tells us the priorities in the numbers. If we follow the numbers, we see what their priorities are. Their priorities are to expand the institution of policing. Their priorities are merely to address these other matters in tokenistic ways uh, in order to make it seem like they're doing something to address these widespread concerns from our communities. So that's, that's what I think is going on there. In, in terms of addressing mental health, you know, it does need to be from uh, people in, that, in those communities leading the way there. Uh, and so that would be my perspective on that. Yeah. Speaking here to Tom Hooper, a faculty member at York University and historian, um, and we're, we're going to get around to it. We're, we're kind of doing a, a scenic route here to get to the issue of funding for pride. Um, but, uh, you know, just just really even in, in thinking about this and the constantly um, expanding police budget in light of the ask for uh, a diminishment of that police budget. And I just want you raised at the very outset in 1971 and the We Demand movement of which I was honored to be the only woman to sign on to that. Um, and I usually use that as an example, a positive example, because I think, you know, for activists out there, you know, it's, it's you feel like you're beating a head, your head against the wall and policing is one of those issues. And, you know, the head is going and the wall is staying intact. Um, and I use that example of We Demand as like, if you look at the, the list of demands, honestly, we won just about every one of them. And we were a group of like hippies, utopian hippies. I mean, we didn't expect for a moment that the government or anybody would listen. So, I mean, yeah, took 50 years, but <laughs> and 51 years now, um, but, um, but, you know, it is possible you can win. So I just want to throw that little, you know, hope out for 2022. So now let's do the deep dive into pride and its funding. Go for it. Yes. So, I mean, it, it's on the heels of our discussion of police because Pride made this deal with the federal government um, with uh, after a meeting with uh, then Finance Minister Bill Morneau that, okay, if Pride invites the police back into the festival after them having been banned from the 2016 Black Lives Matter protest, 
if Pride does that, then the federal government will provide these various grants. And that was communicated to the board of Pride Toronto at their meeting following uh, that sort of rendezvous between Pride and Morneau. And so out of that, uh, Pride applied for three different federal grants, uh, totaling uh, $1.85 million. Uh, and that money was coming from uh, both uh, the Department of Canadian Heritage and from uh, public safety. And what I found uh, is that the projects they had applied for in those grant applications were never actually implemented. And it's pretty easy to check now when you get a grant application, it says by the end of 2019, we're gonna visit over 200 pride festivals. We're gonna go to 25 indigenous communities. We're gonna hire 50 indigenous teachers uh, in those communities. And you can look and say that never happened. That did not happen in 2019, but they still received the money. So where did that money go? And uh, I think that's sort of where I began my, uh, once, I, once I discovered, okay, this is no longer about 1969 anymore. This is about what happened to these grant funds. They didn't celebrate 1969. They didn't embark on a countrywide tour to indigenous communities. So where did it go? And you know, this is pre-COVID, so it's not like, oh, COVID got in the way of a touring exhibit. No, no, this is before then. So what happened? And that's sort of that's where I kind of got into it. And I, I found other problems. The, the deeper I went, the more I peeled this onion, uh, the more problems I found. And so I'll give you an example. In support of these grants, Pride filed these letters uh, from these different community organizations, including the 519 Community Center, and from the Assembly of First Nations. And this was curious to me when I found these letters because it was right after uh, Pride announced they were inviting the police. And so for these uh, organizations to take this position publicly in an endorsement letter, it seemed strange, especially since they hadn't actually done so publicly. So I contacted the 519, I sent them the letter and I said, so what's up with this? Did you support Pride's decision to allow the police back in? And uh, they responded to me that this letter was not authentic. And they provided me a letter that they had given Pride earlier for a, a grant the previous year. And so it seems to look like this letter, but we didn't authorize that the November 2018 letter in support of the grant that I was looking at. So um, that's just some of what I found. I, I don't want to talk too long at once and let you ask the questions. That's just sort of an introduction of some of the things that I found with regard to this grant project. Now, you are a member of Pride. Um, were you aware of that kind of quid pro quo uh, deal with the federal government to get money in exchange for laying the police back in, basically? <laughs> it wasn't until uh, it was the AGM the following year that these board minutes were leaked. And that's when I got a copy of it. And that's sort of uh, those board minutes kind of nicely uh show that there was this direct connection between if we make this announcement about police it will facilitate this funding and that was sort of the point where i realized okay the grant issue actually is tied to the police issue but it was very vague at that point like, we didn't know which grants you're talking about it doesn't say uh, so it took a, a long time of waiting for access to information requests to come through before this was 
finally pieced all together. Uh, speaking here on the Radical Reverend Show, um, your host, Sherry DeNovo, of course, um, to Tom Cooper, who's a faculty member at York um, in Equity Studies and member of Pride and also historian. Um, but we're talking to him in particular about this kind of deep dive into the finances at Pride Toronto. So um, to get back to that, Tom, um, uh, these are some serious charges. These are, uh, this is public money. Um, and uh, so what you know what's been done with with this well i have uh you know been trying to uh get pride to act because i think the the only, i only know a piece of the story okay i mentioned the access to information documents i got them from heritage i did not receive them from public safety i did not receive them from the ministry of finance even though they promised they would release them so I only have a small part of the story. That $1 million from public safety, I don't know what that's about at all. So Pride is really is responsible for coming forward here. They need to, they need to tell us uh, what happened. And I've been trying to get them to do that since the summer. Since the CBC uh, report came out on the $250,000 grant last June, I've been trying to get them to come forward. And in fact, I filed a motion for next week's annual meeting that would allow us to vote on whether to lift those non-disclosure agreements that prevent people who know what ha happened from speaking. And Pride came back and told me in July, uh, uh, that won't be on the agenda. And now we see it's not on the agenda. So they, they know that uh, there's this problem and I have been uh, engaging with them. They called a KPMG review, and I participated in that. I cooperated with that. I sent KPMG uh, all the access to information documents I have received to date. And uh, I was told by KPMG that review, although it's ready, it will not be made available until after the annual meeting. So it is, it's really difficult not to read these various items as though the current board and the current staff at Pride uh, are not being forthcoming with what occurred with these grants. And we need them to change that. They need to come forward. And, uh, and I don't think as members that we can allow Pride to you know, ram through the approval of these financial statements. How can we possibly uh, vote and support or even consider what the the auditor, the pride auditor has put before us uh, without knowing what happened here. So two questions here. Uh, one, uh, we know uh, without mentioning names that the leadership of pride has shifted from those days. Um, uh, and are you, so what do you expect the response will be when you say some of this at the annual general meeting? I have no idea what they will respond with at the annual general meeting. And yes, it's true. There has been a change in the leadership. There was a change in the leadership in January 2020. Members were not explained uh, what happened with that change in leadership. So uh, yes, there, uh, there were issues in terms of leadership, but it is wrong to suggest that everything that is in my report is the work of one person. That is not the case. That is not what I have found. In fact, uh, and I know it's long. I mean, I get it. I'm a historian. Okay. It's a long report. So get a snack and work through it. But if you get through to the last half, you'll see 
all of the efforts that were made by you know current current staff and and former and current board members uh, to to not let this get out, and so uh, that um, we have to confront that we have we have to wrap our head around that that and we have to get away from this thesis that this was the work of one person uh, that that is now gone. That's not the case. Uh, speaking to uh, Tom Hooper here on the state of, of Pride Toronto um, and uh, his incredibly extensive report on uh, tracing tracing the money, you know, where it came from, what it came for, and um, and where it went. Um, so so leaving aside the financial aspects of Pride, I mean, as a member of Pride, um, I mean, we we know that. My goodness, like from the inception of pride, money's been an issue in a sense, you know, one sense or another. What what needs to happen here? I mean, what needs to happen to, do you think, uh, both, I mean, not just in a financial sense, but in, in what way does pride Toronto need to reform itself or be reformed so that um, it's more transparent, more open, more responsive to its membership, um, et cetera? What do you think? So, uh, well, there's, there's a few. The first is that this is not, uh, I, I think the financial issue actually is the secondary issue. And that's why I'm critical of the KPMG report, because the idea is, okay, KPMG is going to save pride from this because they're an auditing accounting firm. They're going to do a deep dive on the numbers and they're going to come back to us. I think the primary issue here with what happened with pride is with regard to the treatment of indigenous artists and indigenous groups. So, uh, among, I mentioned the letter from the 519, one of the other letters Pride provided was from the Assembly of First Nations. The person whose signature appeared on that letter left the AFN uh, six months before, and they did not authorize or sign the letter. The Assembly of First Nations uh, has yesterday confirmed to me that that letter is not authorized and was not authorized. So that's that's important because Canadian Heritage cited that they they referenced that partnership with the Assembly of First Nations in determining whether to provide Pride with the six hundred thousand dollar grant. That is in the contribution agreement, uh, and it's based on that letter and that letter alone. We also have the the treatment of artists, the Indigenous artists, including uh, Cree artist Kent Monkman and uh, another uh, group of artists called Indigiqueer. And that is a really important part of what I have found. So Pride initially approached Monkman and said, we have this, these funds, here you go, uh, develop this art project. And Monkman went with us, sure, I'll go with it. At the very last minute, Pride went back to Monkman and said, oh, by the way, Pride is gonna own your artwork at the end of the project. We're gonna own seven new Monkman works. And that's not how it works. That is not how an art commission goes. And seven new Monkman works is going to be worth a whole lot more than what Pride could possibly offer. Uh, to put that out at the last minute was wrong. And Monkman, as a result, walked away. So Pride went and found this other group in DigiQueer, hired them onto the project. And again, late into contract discussions, they drop on this group, this clause, uh, Pride Toronto will have all legal rights over what is produced from the project. Uh, that didn't come from the executive director, okay? That come from uh, the director of operations. So I think, you know, 
that is all of that the attempt to take in ownership of indigenous artwork in order to commission an asset uh, and the treatment of indigenous artists going back and forth with them um, all of that is behavior that has nothing to do with the finance well not nothing to do but it's not directly uh, related to the mo money issue and i don't know how that can be reformed sherry how, how do you reform that when you have this institution that has gone to indigenous artists and demanded they sign over their legal rights. I mean, I just don't know how that gets changed. Um, so, I mean, I don't really know how to address that question. I mean, I, I don't know that the current structure of pride can actually be made into something that actually works for our community. Uh, speaking here to Tom Hooper about this um, pretty damning report um, on um, not only their finances you've heard and, and 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 Tom you kind of addressed what I was going to ask about this relationship with indigenous artists and the community um, so essentially is two fraudulent letters and and, and and lots of other questions about what's happening so so I'll go back to you know what we started to talk about which is the way forward now um, what what do you you know you're part of it, we're part of it, we're all part of it, the queer community in a sense. What's the way forward for Pride Toronto? How can we get away from, you know, what, what is, you know, if if nothing else, an incredibly questionable background um, and and move into something something that really is representative of the community? Yeah, I, I mean, I really don't know. I don't know that we can move on from this. Uh, I think there are some specific things that Pride needs to do to address this issue, you know, they need to compensate those indigenous artists and groups and communities who were supposed to have been hired in this project and then were told it's off. I mean, I should go back and finish that story between Monkman and Indigiqueer. After telling Indigiqueer that uh, Pride would have all legal rights over what is produced, uh, a few days later, they arranged a phone call. They called up Indigiqueer and said, uh, look, we didn't get the grant. The 600,000 didn't come through, uh, so the project's off. So Indigiqueer is heartbroken. You know, this, this affects them. This $600,000 grant that was going to allow them to produce these ideas uh, is, is taken away. The same day, Pride called Monkman back and said, hey, uh, would you reconsider, come back to us, take over the project, and we'll drop our demand for ownership rights. So they're playing these Indigenous groups against each other. It's it's awful. So all of those folks need to be uh, compensated, in my opinion. Um, I want to make clear, I am calling for this. Uh, the artists involved, they are not making that call. I am making that call. Uh, the second thing is I think the individuals and groups whose names were used without uh, authorization, they need to be uh, compensated. And we also have to get rid of these non-disclosure agreements. The people who know who have the knowledge and they are out there uh, and they want to speak, uh, those non-disclosure agreements have to be waived for those folks. Um, we also need to bring accountability. We need that KPMG report published in full. Uh, we need to know about all grants at all levels, not just the federal government. So I've started access to information requests from the provincial government now as well. Uh, and we also need to address the corporate structure. I don't know that the corporate structure of Pride with this executive director slash CEO and this board uh, is the way to is the way to do this. I think it needs to be a community-based organization that's accountable to the community, not to the Toronto Police, not to KPMG, 
not to Canadian heritage, but to us. Uh, so that's what I think. Now, most people assume that the board is in some way elected, though, by us. Is that not the case? They're elected by us, um, but they don't seem to be accountable to us, you know, uh, beyond that election. If you try to ask questions, it's difficult to get the core answers. And part of the reason is they can't answer. They are legally bound from giving me the answer. So I can kind of understand the frustration of the current board, especially if they have known since last summer all of this stuff, because they are bound by this agreement they've all signed. They can't come forward. That's just a, a complete flaw and a recipe for all of this type of unethical behavior to, uh, to happen. I mean, this is uh, coming from from what business background I once did have, but um, my understanding of non-disclosure agreements is that most of them don't ever hold up anyway. Um, uh, but I mean, here, I mean, sometimes it can be a way of hiding, let's just put it that way, um, rather than a, a legal, you know, a, a legal hammer. But speak about that a bit. Yeah. Well, the thing is, the, 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 the folks who are on the board are often coming from our community. They do not have the knowledge of legal processes. They don't have access to legal advice. And so the mere threat that, oh, you signed this agreement and we can sue you. Oh, and by the way, we're an organization taking in millions of dollars. So we have the funds to sue you. Uh, that's enough fear to keep this uh, culture of silence going. And that's what I found. Every single person I have spoken to in terms of dealing with this in, in the community is, it has to be off record. I don't want to speak on record. I can't. That's it's a complete culture of silence from every single corner. Uh, and if it weren't for a, a, a historian poking around on 1969, this would never have come up. It's like I said, this was discovered by accident. And that's the thing that scares me, because if I weren't studying 1969, nobody would have come to know this stuff. And that's not how it should be. We need to have systems of accountability. Uh, just one last question, and just doing this deep dive here on the Radical Reverend Show with Tom Hooper into uh, Pride Toronto um, for the funding, um, its relationship to the federal government and others, um, the police, etc. Um, uh, you know, what about the federal agencies? Do they not demand some accountability for their money? Um, I mean, if this, the, they were not fulfilled, you know, the kind of agreements that they made. Um, is there not accountability coming from them? What about the light shining there? So I'll ask you about that. We definitely need the light shining there. I've been asking Heritage. Uh, we need to find out why they've withheld all these access to information documents, why there's so many documents that are withheld due to cabinet confidences. We need to find out how it is that the Department of Canadian Heritage had two different programs funding a Pride Toronto Kent Monkman project, and they didn't know about each other. They didn't seem to know, two programs within Heritage didn't seem to know that they were funding the same thing until after everything kind of uh, came out. So that definitely we need to figure out what happened within the Department of Canadian Heritage and how a government program that's using state funding is just letting this go. They. As part of the contribution agreement, Pride had to submit an audited financial report, and it would detail where all the money from the $250,000 grant went. And Pride said, oh, our, our, our auditor is going to charge us $10,000 to do that. Can we not do that, please? And Canadian Heritage said, 
okay, just don't do it next time. Uh, and it's like, okay, <laughs> all right, like seriously. And the other part is Heritage accepted this idea that, you know, oh, uh, there was a serial killer. And so therefore we should allow Pride to use funds for activities from before they even made their application. Uh, except the problem is that the serial killer was arrested 10 months before Pride even applied for the funds. He's sitting in jail, and yet somehow he's affecting this Pride Toronto touring exhibit to Indigenous communities. So uh, yeah, Heritage has to answer for why they accepted this and how this all went down there. Uh, well, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, here uh, speaking to Tom Hooper, faculty member, equity studies at York, um, and member of Pride. Uh, just one minute left, uh, Tom, very quickly. What can people do who are part of the community knowing the AGM is coming up about all of this? What would you suggest to the community? If you're a member of Pride Toronto, you should definitely register and show up to the annual general meeting and uh, take note of what goes on there. I'm gonna try to speak, but there's no guarantee we will. It's gonna be tightly controlled. Uh, and when it comes to the financial, the approval of the financial statements, you need to ask yourself whether you have enough information to vote yes. And I'm going to ask you, uh, I'm gonna suggest that you don't have enough information. We don't have enough information. So please vote against approving Pride Toronto's financial statements. Uh, until these various issues have been addressed. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you for being on the Radical Reverend Show and for all your good work. Take it's great care. to be here. Thank you. Celebrating our 35th anniversary as the sound of your city. We thank all of our listeners for their loyal support. Stay tuned. Welcome back, listeners, to The Radical Reverend Show. Thank you for sticking with us. You won't be disappointed um, because we're going to change track in this half hour and talk to an educator. You know, we started this last week because back to school. Uh, and uh, this particular educator came to my attention because she did a very brave and singular act and just refused to go into an unsafe work environment, which you heard last week is describes a lot of our educational <laughs> settings these days. Um, so I asked her on the show, I'm delighted she said yes. And I have with me Mary Fraser Hamilton. She is, as you heard, an educator. Uh, she's a drama teacher and she's in Peel region. Um, Mary, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start in with your action. Um, you know, you put it out there on Twitter, you weren't being anonymous, you were very upfront in public. So many of the educators I speak to are so frightened uh, about administration, about their jobs, everything. Um, so what went into that action? Well, I'll start by saying that the only reason that I um, felt secure in my ability to actually start a work refusal is because I have a supportive administration, because I have a principal who respects me, and also I have a contract. I've been teaching for over a decade now, um, and I'm really quite secure in my job security. I know that I've got my union backing me up. I know that I have a admin that's not going to take revenge on me. Um, so I felt like if I didn't have the career, and I'm also like a privileged white lady, you can't see that on the radio, but that's what I am. Um, so I felt like if it wasn't going to be me taking a stand, um, then how could I expect anybody to take a stand for me? So I, you know, had our first two days of the week they were uh 
They were snow days here in Peel region. Uh, we didn't go into the building either of those two days. And then when I went back, I looked around and I realized that nothing had changed since before the break. Nothing substantial was different in my school other than the fact that we didn't have PCR testing and that all of the rapid tests that were given out before the break had been used up or sold on Kijiji. So we didn't have PCR testing. We didn't have rapid testing um, and we weren't getting better, higher quality masks. Nothing was safer. We had two weeks that were supposed to be taken to make school safe. And I looked out in the atrium and I saw the same kids walking around with their masks over their chins. And I said, nope, this is, this is not it. And so I went back into my classroom and finished teaching my class and sent my principal an email and said, as soon as the bell rings and I no longer have to supervise this group of students, I will be refusing unsafe work. And then I went out to my car. <laughs> and uh, I mean, the, the so this was so brave. I mean, this is a sense, in a sense, a kind of wildcat strike, right? That you you did. Um, and you have children at home, so you have reason to be concerned. They're also in elementary school too. So talk about the, their condition, where they're where they are at. Well, and the thing is, so my kids actually got COVID um, in the fall in October. They've had it twice, actually. They got Delta and Omicron. We're really lucky in this house. Um, so they had COVID in the fall. Uh, the only reason that I knew they had COVID because their round with Delta was um, asymptomatic. Uh, with Omicron, they got hit much harder symptoms wise, but with Delta in the fall, they were asymptomatic. And the only reason we knew about it um, was because of the PCR testing was because they were sending cohorts of kids home. So they sent my daughter's class home after a kid had tested positive. And on day seven or eight, we went to go get our PCR tests. And it turns out that both my daughter and son were positive. And by that time, my kid's classroom was an outbreak, which means that they believe that COVID is transmitting in the classroom itself. And um, none of that would have been brought to our attention without access to PCR testing without that track and trace that was happening from public health. Um, and while it was scary, it was still really comforting because, you know, a public health nurse called me and she explained all the rules to me. And then later a pediatrician called me and told me all these things to watch out for. And even though it was, you know, a nerve wracking time the first time around, I felt really supported. Um, by the school and by public health. And then the second time around, when they uh, got Omicron, I just said, whoa, where did everything go? Where are all the supports? What do you mean we don't even have tests to confirm? The only reason we had uh, the ability to confirm it was because my husband got one of the last PCR tests in Ontario. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have known that Omicron was in our house. And we just, it, it was just such the opposite experience. Um, so I'm really feeling for all of the families that are going to get hit with this wave, who've been avoiding it for almost two years now, and all of a sudden are going to get knocked off their feet with no support. 
Speaking uh, here on the Radical Reverend Show, if you just tuned in to Mary Fraser Hamilton, she's an educator, drama teacher in the Peel region, um, talking about the difference between now and then in terms of response by uh, school boards, basically. Uh, where does this come from? I mean, this is this originates in the Ministry of Education, of course, and with Lecce. So, like, where do, where where do you place the blame for this? <laughs> I, I should I wouldn't say new policy. I'll say lack of any kind of policy. Um, oh. where, where does that originate? Well, it's, you're right. It's just a complete abdication of responsibility, right? That's exactly it. It's not that there's a new policy. It's that we've decided to have no policy whatsoever. Um, and that's just fascinating to me as an exercise. I mean, really, if we want to track like the etymology of this decision, I think we would probably have to look back to the states when the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, said, oh, let's just call it five days and quit. Um, and then that spread because, you know, when America sneezes, Canada catches a cold. Um, and then all of a sudden, somebody in the ministry decided that that was a good idea. Uh, and I think, honestly, if we hadn't have seen the CDC make that decision, we would be in a different state. But basically, I think Ontario said, oh, every other jurisdiction has given up. Let's give up, too. Um, and, you know, I've had... There are places that have restricted access to PCR testing and they're still doing a really good job of things like access to rapid tests. So Nova Scotia, for example, has a bi-weekly or twice a week, I guess, rapid test program that its students go through that they've had for quite a lot of the fall. That's, you know, in connected within the public health um, ecosystem. Um, so there are other jurisdictions that aren't doing PCR tests, masks for everybody, but that are doing a really good job staying on top of this. And Ontario just decided not to be one of those uh, jurisdictions. Um, and I think some of it's a cost-saving exercise. I think some of it's um, an effort to bury the numbers because if we aren't sure that we had COVID, how can we be sure that that's what it is? Like we know that the numbers are so obscured by the lack of data. Um, and I really feel that's deliberate. I mean, Lecce spent half of the break talking about 3000 new HEPA filters. Well, you know, guess what? That's 0.6 per school. I've, <laughs> I've never seen a HEPA filter. And if there's only gonna be 0.6 per school, that new ones, that tells me that I'm never going to see a HEPA filter. So why are we throwing out that big number that seems like a really big number? Instead, it, it's to obscure these other numbers that we don't have access to anymore. It's to obscure that testing data. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> there's a lot of blame to go around, but a lot of it is at Lecce's feet. Yeah, I mean, speaking about HEPA filters, um, one of the issues that's come up time and time again in a response from educators is, you know, the the lack of ventilation. I mean, very, very few people are lucky enough. And and even those who want to bring HEPA filters in, often the administration tells them they can't. Um, or 
you know, classrooms will crack a window or open a door if they're in a portable. Um, and then, of course, parents start complaining that their children are freezing. Um, so you kind of can't win. Um, yeah. So, what, I mean, now let's get back to you, though. Again, sure. we're talking to Mary Fraser Hamilton, stage an incredibly brave. It's the only one I've heard of. I, I'm astounded it's the only one I've heard of. There has been you, more. There have, there been, have more. been more. So, I mean, we, we really need to say kudos to everyone who says, you know, schools are unsafe. They're unsafe work environments. And we supposedly, under our labor laws in this province, have the right to refuse unsafe labor. Um, so tell me about your process. So you walk out, um, but I happen to know you're back there now. So what happened in between? So, um, so I don't even know the days of the week. What is time anymore? Um, so last week I walked out. Uh, it took uh, surprisingly, the Ministry of Labor is actually short-staffed due to COVID right now. Uh, quite a few of them, I imagine, are sick or isolating, um, as is the rest of the province. So they weren't able to get to me on day one of the work refusal. Uh, so day two, uh, I get informed that we're going to meet with um, some designated workers from my school board, and we're going to go over my concerns at sort of the stage one level. And the stage one level is when we try to resolve things in-house. And basically, that consisted of um, my principal, who is, again, a really supportive individual, going over these are the board's policies, these are the resources that the ministry has given to us, um, do you, could you please come back to work? And I say, nope, those aren't safe enough for me. And then he says, okay, let's call the Ministry of Labour. So the Ministry of Labour inspector arrives. And then we spend a little while going through my list of the sort of the things that I am concerned about. Um, and then we, uh, she did an investigation um, and went through some of those concerns. And those include things that we've talked about, like the lack of proper masking for students, um, the challenges in our lunch plan with eating in the hallways, the challenges of no tr testing and tracing. Um, and then we talk about ventilation later, and I'll explain that later. But basically, her response to every single of my every single one of my concerns was, "Well, your employer has provided you with PPE, haven't they?" And I say, "Well, yes, I have this mask." And you know, fair fair play to Leche, he managed to secure some N95s for us that smell a little bit like a factory. But all right, I'll take it. N95s are N95s. Um, and you know i've got uh, a face shield and she says well it, you you are at risk of exposure but you've got ppe and i'm trying to get her to see that there's a big difference between walking past a single child who isn't wearing their mask properly versus walking past a pack of 25 of them eating lunch walking sharing the same bag of cheetos and she doesn't she she they don't see the difference between degrees of risk of exposure they see are you at risk of exposure or are you not? And over and over again, she acknowledged, oh, yep, I see the hole in this plan. Oh, yeah, that's not the safest thing. Oh, I don't really like that. But of course, none of that's on the actual report that they issued at the end of this because student safety is not within the purview of the Ministry of Labor. So because the students are, I don't know, for lack of a better word, clients rather than workers, 
um, their safety does not fall under the jurisdiction of the Ministry of Labor. I would hate to say something so callous as, you know, their safety doesn't matter to the Ministry of Labor. I'm sure that other people might feel that. And I felt like that too while I was in the room, but it really does boil down to that's just not their jurisdiction, which then means that there's nobody standing up for our children with any sort of judicial authority. Um, there's but no check or balance. You? But what about well, you? I that's mean, it. You know, so so in the in the report, first of all, I'm amazed they even came out. That's remarkable considering um, the circumstances right now. Um, and so, I mean, that's good news to every other educator out there. At least you can get the Ministry of Labor in your in your schools and having a look and writing a report. If all of you did that, I think that would make a difference. But so so what you know, the report didn't didn't saw you as working in a safe place. Is that what was that the conclusion after all that? Yep, the report said, okay, yep, you uh, have provide been provided with. PPE to mitigate the harms of your workplace environment. Therefore, you are not in likely of being endangered, which is just, you know, a load of all sorts of things. Um, because how many educator friends do I know who have already caught mm. Omicron after two or three days? I have four friends isolating right now. Um, and whether they picked it up from their classrooms or their children's classrooms, I don't know. But literally just in the week, in the last few days since my work refusal, I've had four new people who I consider friends, not like Twitter friends, real actual friends need to go into isolation. So we know that we know that we're at risk of exposure. We know that the risk of exposure de varies depending on what our classrooms look like and depending on how safe our students are. But there's no trigger point to say, yeah, we agree with you. They're just, they're, you know, circling the wagons and saying, no, you've got your N95, deal with it. Uh, talking to Mary Fraser Hamilton here on the Radical Reverend Show, a brave woman who said, nope, I'm not going in there to um, the school because it's an unsafe work environment. And it's my right to refuse unsafe work. Um, so, okay, so Ministry of Labor came, did something, but nothing came of it. What about your union? Because you're a member of a union. What happened there? So um, I will say that, so my union was on the phone with me. Actually, before we get to my union, I just wanted to mm -hmm. say the ventilation side of things is still in, got kicked back to stage one. So what that means is my school board needs to provide me with more answers as to the state of ventilation in my school. Um, and depending on those answers, I can uh, re initiate the work refusal if I'm not satisfied with those answers. So the Ministry well, of good. Labor, yeah, it's great. The mm -hmm. Ministry of Labor has acknowledged that the school board hasn't done enough to assure me that my ventilation is good. So I'm learning in the meantime, I'm learning everything I can about ventilation standards and cubic feet per minute per person of airflow. I'm all of a sudden an expert um, in ventilation. Um, so that is that is promising. Um, but as to your question about my union, my union was on the phone with me, but uh, here's the tricky thing about work refusals. They can't be directed or organized by a union. And, and even, for example, doing something as retweeting my post about a work refusal, 
could put my union in danger of being litigated against, uh, which I think we need to talk about <laughs> broadly. What's the point of a union if it can't organize its labor its laborers when they're unsafe work environments? Um, there are lots of things that I would, you know, call my union out on, but this their particular support on a work refusal isn't one of them because there's just there's the costs are so high from this government, which loves taking people to court. Um, and, you know, we've seen that in how they treat nurses. We've seen that in how they treat midwives. They love spending time in court so that they can avoid giving anything up. Um, but I do think it's interesting how this government just continues to run roughshod over unions and people, you know, in response to some of my tweets, everybody was saying, oh, these teacher unions have so much control over this province. Look at these corrupt teacher unions, keep them away from my children. And I just want to scream because if we actually had this much control over things, wouldn't we have safe schools? Wouldn't we have this N95 situation worked out a year and a half ago when we started asking for them? Like this is not all of these things that we're asking for right now aren't new. So whenever I hear somebody say, oh, grumble, grumble, teachers unions, I want to say, where is all of this power that I seemingly have? I can't seem to find it at all. Um, all I see is, you know, my my union president going up to my going into the board office and saying, well, you know, what do you think about this policy that's maybe more equitable for snow days and them taking nine times to get the memo right? Like, I don't I don't see this supposed power that we have. Um, I, I feel supported, but I don't. Yeah, I just don't know if we've got the oomph. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I look at uh, several kind of unions, of, and you must too, uh, in the States, including teachers unions down there that have um, have been much more militant, though, about this. So just throwing it out there, just throwing it out there. I know I've heard, you know, we're not in a legal strike position, but I mean, if there ever was a time to strike, it seems <laughs> to me, when, you're, when everybody's coming down with illness and you're risking the lives of people and vulnerable people at home and vulnerable people on the work, that might just be the time, but yes. let's move on. Let's move well, on from, from this. Well, and there are, frankly, yeah. there are actions that we can take that are not strike actions, right? There are protests, there are rally actions. We need to be connecting more with parents and explaining what's going on in the schools. I mean, it's not just all about strike. Like it's about, there's so much that we could be doing to better communicate this situation. And yeah, we're struggling on that. Again, talking to Mary Fraser Hamilton. So the upshot of all of this, uh, you made this brave work refusal move and amazingly got some action out of the Ministry of Labor. So hint, hint, nudge, nudge to all of those educators out there. Do this because at least there is something on the book saying your board needs to do something more about ventilation. So it was, was worth it, right? Um, but at the end of the day, you're back there. So what happened there? So uh, at the end of Thursday, they said, you know, investigate this ventilation thing more, but all of your other concerns um, are not likely to, air quotes, endanger you. So please go back into the classroom. And of course, at that point, I, I can be dismissed from my job if I refuse to go back into the classroom. And I really, really love teaching. So I would very much like to not be dismissed from my contract. Um, so I went back into the classroom, 
didn't feel a lot safer. <laughs> um, my custodian's been, you know, poking around my vent work, trying to make sure that it's up to snuff and really trying to help me figure things out. Um, it is a it is a team effort. Um, but, uh, you know, we still don't have PCR testing. We still don't have uh, rapid tests. We still don't have high quality masks for students. Um, and talk about that a little bit, because I don't think everybody out there who maybe is not aware of what's happening in schools is aware that, I mean, kids are still having lunch. I mean, I, I pointed this out a, a while back on, on Twitter, I think, and not, not only I, did I point it out, others too, that, you know, you can't, restaurants are all closed, you can't have 10 people in a big restaurant, but you can have hundreds of children eating and some of them in lunchrooms and gyms unmasked. So you know, go figure. Well, well, and and my school board's policy, how it is, is the CAF is open, but the CAF has really strict rules in it. So there are tables and there are only two to a table and you have to sit facing a certain way. And there's like a capacity of under 100 people in the cafeteria. And we've got around 1200 people attending in person right now. So instead of being in this very safe cafeteria with like actually spectacular ventilation, the children are just sitting on top of each other, eating out of the same bag of chips in the hallway um, because they haven't been given any other options. This is sort of actually, it's a very nice little parallel to what's happening with the testing, where it would be very, very difficult to get an effective plan to reach everybody. And it would involve a lot of supervision and a lot of work on everybody's part. So instead of doing that, we're just not gonna do anything. It's, it's the testing right now and lunch times right now are really sort of two sides of the same coin where it's actually, um, too challenging to try and do something. So we'll just do nothing. So talk um, about the, the lack of testing. I mean, so now um, my understanding is that students have to fill out or their parents have to sign off on a form um, if they uh, symptoms are not symptoms. Um, is that happening? What, what's happening? Anything? <laughs> so the only way that students at uh, my school right now can get a test is if they develop symptoms while they are at school which is hilarious because they fill out this little screening online every morning and they show me this little green check mark. And so if you've done that, I mean, the odds of suddenly developing symptoms in the five, six hours you're at school are, are pretty low considering the rest of the day that you have. So I, I don't quite understand why that's the only way that kids can get access to testing. Um, I mean, I understand it. It's cheap. It saves money. But in terms of an effective control, it's not it's not really there. And then and then they do get a take home PCR kit that they then need to return to the school and then it will get picked up and then it will, you know, somehow make its way somewhere. I'm not even sure, but that tells you how little it's being used. If I don't actually know how it works, that tells you that it's sort of this invisible measure that nobody is actually using. And therefore it's saving somebody a lot of money, but it's not actually going to be very effective in controlling this. And, and you can kind of empathize with some parents. I mean, some parents who, you know, have to go to work, uh, have to don't have paid sick days. Um, and, you know, some of the symptoms are things like a sore throat and runny nose. Well, I would say like 50% of everybody I know has one of those symptoms. It's winter, right? <laughs> but I'm sure it's even higher in little children. So, so I mean, 
there's that you know push to get them into school at all costs. Um, are, so are you seeing kids with symptoms? I mean, that are in classes. Uh, well, yes. Um, I've went for a walk this fall, and a girl said I don't feel so well, and went off to the bushes to throw up. Um, bless her heart. Um, yes, we see kids with with symptoms in classes. Uh, I think it's probably more of a problem in elementary school, as you say. Like I teach high schoolers, so they can stay home by themselves. But especially due to the lack of paid sick days in this province, um, you see that a lot. My elementary colleagues would see that a lot more. The interesting sort of alternative that the government has provided, which is just launched today, we're recording on Monday for folks at home, um, is the absentee rates. Uh, that just got launched um, today. And of course, that's supposed to be the new indicator is these parents who are keeping their children home when they have symptoms are now supposed to factor into these absentee rates. But if, and already apparently one out of 10 of the schools on that site have over 30% absentee rates, but also almost a third of the province's schools aren't yet synced to that site. So we still don't have huge data about who's actually sick and then in some regions um including mine there are mixed messages about how you record the absences of students who are learning from home who would normally be in-person learners do you mark them as present or do you mark them as absent so again it's just creating this whole new veil over accurate data where we can't see what's going on because we are so wrapped up in poor policy decisions. Well, I have to say we've run out of time. It always goes too quickly. Um, you've been listening to the Radical Reverend Show. It's been an absolute delight, um, Mary, to have you on, Mary Fraser Hamilton. It's always so wonderful to see uh, real activism, somebody making a brave stand. So hint, hint, nudge, nudge to all the educators out there, the more of you that do this and that run this circuit and you just heard what it sounds like and what it looks like, but you can do it, um, the, the more you're putting pressure on the boards and ultimately the Ministry of Education to make some changes. Thanks, Mary, and I hope things get better soon. Uh, they have to, we've got an election coming up. I have all the faith in the world. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> Until next time on the Radical Reverend Show. CIUT 89.5 FM, celebrating 35 years at the sound of your city. Proudly student and listener supported community radio.